You're listening to a Westpac Wire podcast. Westpacwire.com.au. Hi, I'm McGregor Duncan, co head of business development at Westpac. I'm here today with Anthony Jenkins, the former chief executive of Global Bank Barclays, to talk about his life and career, whether Miles Davis is overrated, whether Donald Trump will get a second term, and a little bit of fintech too. Anthony Jenkins, welcome to Australia and welcome to our podcast. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I want to start by drawing out the arc of your life and career. Uh, so perhaps we can uh, begin with you telling us a little about your, uh, your, uh, your childhood, uh, where you grew up, uh, what your parents did, what sort of values did they have? I guess I grew up in a, a very ordinary household in the northwest of England, uh, quite close to Manchester, if people know Manchester City, Manchester United. Um, neither of my parents went to university. Both of them left school at uh, 15. Uh, my father worked in manufacturing. My mother was a school secretary. I had three siblings. We were quite close in age. Uh, and I guess I was always fascinated by you know, politics and economics, particularly as a teenager, and that led me to go to university to study, well, politics and economics, inevitably, uh, and then into the financial world after university, six years at Barclays, uh, and then 17 years at City, and then another 10 at Barclays. And in the midst of all of that, in my uh, City days, 13 years of those living in New York. Uh, so it's been a it's an am- amazing journey, really, um, particularly given where I started and uh, really uh, pleased to be here, actually. Uh, so maybe if we can step back and work through some of those experiences sequentially. So, uh, so you end up at Oxford. Uh, you're studying uh, PPE, as you said. Um, what were some of the big intellectual intellectual influences uh, during your time at Oxford? I mean, Oxford is a fantastic university, and you are just kind of stimulated intellectually on on every level. Um, I became particularly fascinated with um, how how sort of people behave and react. One of the things that I studied when I was at Oxford was um, voting intentions and um, why people voted in ways which seemed not to be in line with their short-term economic interests, which of course is all about aspiration. So that got me thinking about you know people and economics is often called the dismal science. There's many reasons why that's true and I often think that uh, I wish I'd studied more psychology than economics. At the end of the day, Life and business is all about people, how people interact, what they do, how they behave. And so, uh, so coming out of PPE, I imagine a number of your contemporaries uh, pursued careers in government, foreign service, uh, politics. Uh, so what was it that drew you to the private sector and what in particular to retail banking? I suppose I'd always grown up in the household where you know, business was talked about. My father, as I said, was a... Uh, in manufacturing and you know, when we were little he'd take us round the factory to get us out of our mother's hair and I remember playing on the telephones it seemed very cool you know that you could pick up a telephone and talk to your sister at the other end of the office and so it was sort of in my DNA to think about business and I've, I've always thought of myself more as a business person than a, than a banker necessarily uh, and of course the retail um, and corporate banking credit cards they, they have lots of elements of, of a business as well as being financially oriented and I guess I was attracted because I was so you know, fascinated by economics and commerce and because, of course, um, finance sits at the heart of society. I was always drawn to business rather than to any other sector. But I've also equally been fascinated throughout my life about the big challenges and opportunities that confront societies around the world. And because of 
the life that I've lived, I've been afforded a great view into those things. I've been very privileged in that regard. You made a really interesting point about seeing yourself as a businessman rather than a banker. Do you think that that differentiated you in important ways from some of your colleagues or contemporaries in the banking world? It goes back to what I was saying about um, people. And you know, it was very clear to me early on in my career. And I began my career in a branch. So here's the newly minted Oxford graduate sitting in the back office of a branch. And every morning, uh, a huge stack of continuously printed statements would arrive. They had to be torn off and filed alphabetically. It took me half a day to do that. But what I learned in a branch was that banks are there to solve problems for customers. They're not there for any other reason. And most of the time for customers, their finances are a chore. Um, but what they enable and empower in the customer's life is incredibly important. And of course, the classic example is buying a home, one of the most important life events for any of us. And yet the business of getting a mortgage is just tedious admin, um, but it's stressful, tedious admin. And what I learned in my early days was that when people came into the branch and they had a problem, if you solve that problem for them, they were delighted. Um, not only were they delighted, but they you know, had then a connection to the bank. And of course, the reverse was true. If they came into the branch and you were obnoxious, then they had the reverse opinion. And this, this notion of banks being there to serve people, um, what I came to describe as make people's lives much easier in later times, that really struck me from day one. And of course, all great businesses are orchestrated and designed around solving customer problems not around um, rent-seeking behaviour because of the way the system works or because of you know, the, the regulatory or legal environment. And I think that focus on people and focus on customers started right at the beginning of my career and has stuck with me all the way through. I certainly want to move uh, in the course of this podcast to talking about the ways that new technologies like artificial intelligence and distributed ledgers might enable that invisible finance, that, that better customer experience. Um, but I just want to, uh, to, 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 to follow up. So, you're, uh, so you, you, know, you, you move through Barclays and through City. You end up running the retail bank at, uh, at Barclays before you're appointed uh, CEO. Um, this is in a time where I think looking back, we might say that the customer experience uh, in banking was not great. How do you reflect back on your time in those leadership positions, uh, you know, in the way that Barclays and City and other banks did serve their customers? Mm. What I'd always tried to do in the roles that I had was put the customer at the heart of what we were doing. And one of the last things I did at City was launch a new credit card product called Simplicity, the notion being that there were no fees and charges. It was all very transparent. And that product is still marketed actively by City today, sort of 13 years later. Um, but particularly when I was running the retail bank, uh, I launched a program called Lives Made Much Easier. And this was really important because we eliminated uh, sales commissions in the branch, for example. Um, the only targets that we set for our staff were about making customers satisfied, delighting customers. And that was a, a liberating thing for our colleagues because, you know, like all uh, banks, they had been on the sort of treadmill of we've got to sell so many widgets every day, every week, every month, and the customer would come in to pay in a check and it's, oh, by the way, would you like a mortgage while you're here? And that just it was not right for the customer. It wasn't right for our colleagues. They found it incredibly frustrating to have to be on that treadmill when they just wanted to serve the customer. So um, 
in in my career, what I've been characterised really by two things. One is this focus on the customer, and the second is by my um, belief and desire to use technology to solve customer problems better. So in 2012, you become the CEO of, of, of Barclays. One of the things that I've always grappled with in the context of leadership positions, particularly leadership positions of large global organisations, is whether you can truly be effective in those roles or whether or not there are just varying degrees of incompetence, say, uh, as the Peter Principle would tend to suggest. On the one hand, we have someone like Leo Tolstoy who thought that leadership was a myth. On the other hand, we have people like Lincoln and Churchill and Eisenhower, and perhaps in business, uh, maybe Jamie Dimon today or Satya Nadella at Microsoft, who suggest that leadership really does matter. What are your What are your views on the ability to lead a large organisation? I think yeah, organisations, large or small, are made up of people, and people can show up to work and do a job, or they can show up to work and do an excellent job. And what you really want is the latter. And leadership is about that. And for me, you know, I always had a simple definition. It's about painting a compelling vision of the future. It's about um, giving a, a reason why this matters. And then it's about empowering and enabling people to deliver against that vision. That's really the job of a leader. And the higher up the organisation you go, the more, in fact, you have to be the servant of the organisation. It's actually a myth um, that you sit in your office, you know, imperiously governing everything that happens. In an organisation of even a 1,000 people, 10,000 people, 100,000 people, that's just not effective. That command and control way of operating just doesn't work. So I think leadership uh, does matter. I think it is very hard to lead large groups of people, um, but you can feel it. Uh, in that extra excellent performance when you get it right. Um, What did you learn in those three years as CEO? Obviously, uh, you've just identified uh, uh, one one point. Were there any other lessons that you took uh, from a leadership perspective uh, from your time as chief executive? I think one of the very interesting things about uh, that vantage point is that you realise that human beings are inherently risk-averse. And the surprising thing to me was the more senior somebody becomes, the more risk-averse they are. Uh, Because they have built their career over 10, 20, 30 years, they've got to a certain point in the organisation, and basically they are then seeking to maintain their position. Now, this is not meant to be critical, it's simply a fact. And in steady-state environments, that may well be not only fine, but advantageous to the organisation, when an organisation is about kind of optimising. These things, uh, of course, are defined by the circumstances in which the organisation is operating. If you think about the time before the financial crisis, the 20 years or so before that time, conditions were incredibly favourable to banks. So just optimising every year um, was fine. It worked okay. But post the crisis, um, the challenges upon the industry were such that it required an agility and a degree of risk-taking that was hard to find uh, the higher up the organisation you went. Uh, People often talk about middle management, but actually um, I think there's a lot of uh, this behaviour in senior management as well. Actually, the, the 
further down the organization, right, the more people were embracing of change and uh, did some terrific work uh, when I was at Barclays. So you know, these are the things that you, you learn through hard-won experience. Before we move on to discussing uh, some of the interesting activities you've undertaken in your post-Barclays career, in particular the uh, 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 the work that you're doing with 10x Future Technologies at the moment. I just thought we might mix things up a little bit uh, and I'll, uh, I want to put some propositions to you and perhaps you can tell me very quickly whether you agree or disagree. Uh, so let's start off. There will be a stock market crash before 2020. Agree. Why? Uh, I just think that uh, nothing goes up forever, right? We've seen that and at some point um, the the exuberance will go out of the market and things will flip around. So I've read that you're a jazz aficionado. Uh, Miles Davis is overrated. Absolutely not. I saw Miles Davis play live uh, just before he died and he was amazing. Uh, uh, The Booker Prize picks the best novel written each year in the Anglosphere. Agree or disagree? Agree. Why? I think empirically that is the case. Uh, Anthony, you're a marathon runner, so how about this one? A runner will break the magical two-hour marathon barrier within the next decade. I think that's unlikely, but maybe in the next two decades. President Donald Trump will be elected for a second term. I think that's likely. And why? Um, It's a complex answer, but if you look at uh, how voting works in the U.S., uh, the support base is heavily polarised now um, between the, the pro-Trump and the anti-Trump. I think the, there is a good possibility that the pro-Trump will be able to sustain the position. Uber won't survive the autonomous car revolution. That's a tricky one. Um, I disagree with that. And finally, we will one day have a world digital currency. I agree with that. Terrific. Well, with that, uh, let's uh, let's dig into your views on technology and banking and some of the things that you've done since Barclays. You famously said that banking was about to experience its Uber moment, and you've called banks museums of technology. Uh, but for many of us, the first wave of fintech has been quite disappointing. Uh, and so I'm interested to get your thoughts on what evidence you see that the second wave of fintech Uh, will be more disruptive? Mm. I've spent an awful lot of time uh, studying what's going on with not only technology but fintech, of course what the established players are doing. And if you look at the internet in the early 90s, for example, uh, it felt kind of niche that you could send an electronic mail or maybe buy a book or send a photograph rather slowly over the internet. Uh, but if you fast forward 20 years, uh, you see this tremendous uh, set of changes to our lives. And the reason for that is because technology is continuously improving in its capability. Its cost is coming down. And humans' ability to apply technology is increasing all the time. So if we look at what's happened in the first uh, wave of fintech, we've proved that customers will use non-bank providers for uh, activities where the experience is significantly more convenient than using a traditional provider. There's lots of examples of that in wealth management, foreign exchange, payments, and so on. We've also learned that um, 
you can do lending without bank intermediation in the peer-to-peer space. Now, of course, peer-to-peer lending is still quite small and not in itself interesting. But what it does is it lays the foundations for what is to come. We've seen cryptocurrencies move from being you know, a little bit of a sideshow that nobody really knew about and understood to becoming much more mainstream. Now, it is extremely volatile, um, but not only the crypto itself, but also the underlying distributed ledger technologies. These technologies are becoming real and operative uh, in our everyday lives. So we are starting to see um, what I described as Uber moments happening. And what we know is that when these technologies start to bite, um, they tend to have an exponential impact. And that's what I think we are seeing. And what, what do you think that means from a customer perspective? So, you know, for, uh, you know, we, we refer to lots of, you know, we refer to artificial intelligence and open banking and data and distributed ledgers. But from a customer perspective, what do you think that will mean? What are the, what are the sorts of banking that we're likely to see in the future that are enabled by these underlying technologies? It's a huge question and of course predicting the future is always difficult because you're inevitably going to be wrong but let me tell you what I think some of the big trends are going to be. So firstly with open banking we can now imagine a world in which the customer relationship is disconnected from the balance sheet and in that world people who are very good at delivering value to customers are going to win. As I said, in my early days of banking, when customers came into a branch with a problem, they just wanted that problem solved. They didn't care how it was done. Now, if you can solve that problem instantly for the customer by anticipating that it's going to occur, then you can create a much better experience. What would that look like? For example, um, if you know that the customer is going to go on vacation because you know they've booked a holiday, then you might be able to make sure that their card doesn't get blocked overseas for fraud reasons. That's something which should be done easily by not even AI, but by machine learning. Those types of experiences, more profoundly, um, credit assessment, elimination of the false positives, making sure that people who get credit, who need credit and who can support credit get it, making sure that the people who can't do that don't. Those elimination of false positives are very important for the customer. Customers who can support credit should get it, but equally, it's not right to give it to customers who can't. And the way we do credit assessments today is inevitably on a cohort basis, so therefore imperfect. But more profoundly than that, if you think forward, imagine a world in which um, you begin to see peer-to-peer lending massively scaled because it can be supported by a distributed ledger uh, system. Then you could see the cost of borrowing come down quite significantly for customers because you wouldn't need the capital that sits in the middle when lending is intermediated. And finally, um, if you think about the notion of a global cryptocurrency, where trade can be done instantly without foreign exchange risk, um, that is going to accelerate the volume of trade, it's going to enhance GDP, it's going to bring down the cost of individual goods and services. So all of these are benefits that you can imagine happening. Now, what happens and when is very difficult to predict. But I do think we're seeing the the very beginnings of these types of possibilities emerge. And of course, what happens when you get huge industry shifts like this is that the existing players struggle. 
um, and the rent seeking that sits in the system gets squeezed out, the friction gets squeezed out, and along with that goes a lot of profitability. You talked about the potential unbundling or the uncoupling of the monolithic financial service provider uh, uh, into distribution and manufacturing, let's say. Uh, you know, um, when you think at the distribution layer uh, that it will effectively become a data-driven customer experience, highly reliant on artificial intelligence, machine learning and data analytics, it's easy to see how the big tech platforms, the Googles, the Apples, the Amazons, uh, could easily move into that space uh, and, and effectively provide next generation distribution of financial services. Not the underlying balance sheet capability, uh, but the distribution. Do you think that's the biggest risk to incumbent banks? Um, I think it's one of the biggest risks, but I also think that um, the business models that are predicated on um, you know, sort of imperfect information are also at risk in themselves uh, because obviously when you get paid for risk, um, you're partly getting paid for the risk that's created by that imperfect information. And of course, the system of intermediation which requires a bank, a central bank, another bank, possibly an international bank, there's a lot of people taking a little bit off that transaction all the way through. So that's a real risk as well. So I don't just think it's about uh, the customer relationship versus the balance sheet, although that is significant for banks. I also believe that um, it will be possible for banks to prosper in an environment where they manage more of the balance sheet and less of the customer relationship. But it's a fundamentally different business to the business that they're in today. So you left Barclays and you founded uh, uh, 10X Future Technologies. Can you talk a little bit about the company and why you see a dynamic, flexible core banking stack as so important to enabling next generation banking? When I was running Barclays, but really, you know, in many of the jobs that I've had in banking, I've always been fascinated by these two questions of why don't banks work better for customers and why doesn't technology make banking better? And when I left, I began to explore the state of technology and whether it was possible to create a platform that would enable that. And that's effectively what we've built at 10X. Uh, it's entirely customer-centric, data-driven. Um, if you are a user of the platform, it allows you to interact with it in any particular way that you want to. Because the data is centralized, it allows you much more easily to run machine learning, artificial intelligence, all of those things. And we built that platform because we believed that there was going to be a demand for banks and non-banks to be able to deploy these new technologies. For all um, the progress that banks have made, and it is significant in terms of adding modern technology uh, to the customer and the customer experience, um, they are inhibited by the fact that these legacy technologies are very expensive to operate, highly fragmented, and don't generally run in real time, unlike the customer expectation. So if banks are going to win in this world that we've been talking about where management of customer relationship becomes critical, they're going to have to get much better at dealing with these problems. And so the technology we've built um, facilitates that for banks and non-banks. And you envisage that this would involve a replatforming of traditional banking customers or is this the sort of thing that would necessarily need to be set up outside the mothership as a greenfield technology stack? 
The interesting thing about the industry at present is, um, unlike two years ago, there is now a widespread understanding among many bank CEOs that what they have done is not going to take them to where they need to go. So people are beginning to think much more broadly about the question of how do we really get uh, rebuilding the bank. The core banking definition in some ways is quite limiting. If you think about what banks do, they manage data. That's all they do. Um, in fact, our industry, of all industries, should be the most data-driven. But because we fragment that data, it's very hard to do that. Uh, well, it's, al it's always seemed fascinating to me that, uh, that financial services, uh, without a physical product, is one of the last industries to digitise. Uh, um, uh, and so, uh, you know, I am in, I'm, I'm interested in what you think are the, you know, are, are they cultural obstacles? Are they, are they business model obstacles? What, what, do you, what do you think stands in the way from banks really, uh, you know, transforming rather than just innovating? I mean, I think I'd read you once said that banks have done innovation very well, but they've done transformation really poorly. Uh, I think that's quite, a, that's quite an apt way of, uh, of expressing it. What should banks be doing? Well, I, you know, I was talking to somebody who spent a lot of time working in the retail industry, and their point was, you know, when you operate on 3% margins, you sort of have to digitise. So margins have been quite rich in banks uh, for a long time. Secondly, I think banks have been preoccupied with all the changes post the uh, global financial crisis. Uh, and thirdly, uh, there is a lot of internal uh, cultural resistance to the embracing of these new technologies. And fourthly, to be honest, the technologies themselves are still seasoning and growing. So, you know, four or five years ago, cloud was not necessarily viable for financial services, whereas today it is. What I'm finding when I talk to bank CEOs is that they are um, no, they, they now know they have to do something different. They know that they have to do something radical. And so what they're thinking about is how do I create an option on the future? How do I get to experiment with these new technologies and prove that they work? So can I take um, a smaller business, uh, a line of business, uh, a geography that I'm either in or want to be in, stand up a platform on these new technologies, get experience with how to operate them, and then based on that learning, then I can bring that back into my main businesses over time. I think that's exactly the right way uh, to think about this problem and opportunity. And that's what we've built in 10X. We've basically built an option on the future for banks. When you were at Barclays, you were sometimes uh, nicknamed St. Anthony for your focus on the customer, for your effort to improve the reputation, not only of Barclays, but of financial services more generally. Uh, do you think that uh, within the context of responsible capitalism that you've talked about before, do you think that banks need to be playing a more proactive role in supporting communities, in leading public policy debates, even when those topics are unpopular with customers? So in the UK, should they be leading on Brexit? Uh, should they be leading on refugees, on, uh, on free trade and the like? Uh, what responsibility do large, powerful organisations like banks have to play in a society? There's always two ways I think about this. First is, you know, there is an ethical responsibility to what is generally referred to as the common good. Um, and the second is a practical 
requirement where, in fact, good business is basically sustainable business adds to the value of the enterprise. And if you look at industries that have lost sight of that, uh, they end up paying the price because society says, enough, um, we're done with this sort of behaviour, now we're going to step in and we're going to regulate and legislate. And we saw that with the banking industry in the UK and you're seeing it here with the industry in Australia. Now, I'm not debating you know, whether that's right or wrong or the merits of it, but it is the practicalities of it. So I believe it is in businesses' interests to do business in the right way. Now, inevitably, that doesn't mean making everybody happy because you can't make everybody happy. But what it is about is being clear on the business's purpose, on the values that it will operate when it does business. And then when difficult trade-offs have to be made, as inevitably they will be, explaining why those trade-offs are being made and explaining the rationale for them. And that, I think, is the essence of responsible business. And my belief is that responsible business is the right way to do business. It's better for the enterprise itself. It's certainly better for its shareholders, for its employees, its customers, and for society at large. And just to, to, to pick up on something that I asked, do you, do you think that means a role in leading on often contentious public policy matters where, where the bank or, a, or an institution based on its, its awareness of a situation uh, sees it as an important public policy matter? I think um, the most important thing is about the way the bank does business. So how do I treat my customers? Do they understand the product that they're getting? Do they understand what their responsibilities are, what the bank's responsibilities are? Do they understand how pricing works? So that's the first thing. The second thing is, how do we make money? Are we making money because customers value and appreciate our product? Or are we making it out of inertia? Thirdly, I think, how do we treat the people that work in the organisation? Do we invest in their training and development? Do we pay them what we call in the UK a living wage? Um, how do we treat third parties in the so-called gig economy that work with us? Now, I'm not saying that you should never have people who work in the gig economy in the enterprise, but you need to think carefully about that. So the first thing is what the company does itself. The second thing is what economists call externalities. In other words, things that you can't directly attribute price or cost to. So what are the externalities in the enterprise? Simple one, business travel. Every flight that an executive takes, he or she is creating carbon in the atmosphere. So clearly, if that can be minimized through the use of video conferencing, that's a good thing. That's just a small example. The third area that you're talking about, public policy, I think is an area where... Um, uh, banks and our enterprises need to proceed with caution simply because they are not elected officials. Um, that is the role of government to deal with policy issues. But certainly banks and other enterprises should be providing their input and their perspective actively on public policy matters and hopefully doing it uh, with regard for the issue in the round and not just for their self-interest. Anthony, we've only got a few minutes left, so I want to finish with a few more quick questions uh, and get your thoughts. Uh, a former Australian Prime Minister, Paul Keating, used to listen to Wagner and Mahler and Bruckner before cabinet meetings. It's a way that he'd gin himself up for, uh, for big meetings. I've read that you too like to listen to music before entering 
board meetings and the like. Can you tell us a little bit about your preferences in that respect? I've got incredibly eclectic uh, taste. Uh, I like everything from rock to blues, jazz, country, um, and it just depends on you know what I'm what I'm in the mood for. If I've if I've got something you know big speech that I need to give, then maybe I'll listen to something incredibly up tempo. Um, or when I'm out running, if I need to just concentrate, get in the zone, you know, I'll put on some smooth jazz. Um, my wife hates smooth jazz, so if I'm doing that at home, I have to go work somewhere where she's not. Um, and you know, I like country music. I think the lyrics are incredibly kind of uh, usually quite witty and also quite uh, containing some sort of real truths about humanity. Uh, blues, of course, the foundation of much of our modern music, having lived in the United States for so long. Um, I love 12 bar blues, people like Buddy Guy. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, a whole range of, of other genres. So it just depends what I'm in the mood for, frankly. And just so that we can sort of set the image straight in our minds. So, you know, Anthony Jenkins, CEO of Barclays, about to walk into the board meeting. Are you sitting in the executive suite, listening to something in order to G yourself up? Uh, or is it more a way for you to uh, to enjoy music when you were running or relaxing? Um, it's both, really. I think, uh, in many ways, if you have to give... What people don't realise about being a, a CEO is that um, a lot of what you're doing is performing. Um, you're addressing large groups of people. Uh, it could be a group of shareholders, could be a group of colleagues, it could be the board, and... You know, nobody's interested in the fact that you might be having a bad day or might be tired or whatever. You have to be on the top of your game. And I often found that listening to music before I did that, and I still do this, is, is both centering um, and focusing for me. Uh, it's, almost, it's almost like a meditation. Um, whereas when I'm out running, you know, running is a lot about rhythm and flow. And so, you know, the music helps you get into that rhythm and flow and frankly distracts you from the agony of trotting around wherever you're trotting Absolutely. around. Uh, if you could ask Theresa May one, um, to implement one piece of public policy, what do you think it might be? Um, I would require all enterprises to publish a balanced scorecard in their report and accounts to explain how they're serving not just the shareholder but their other stakeholders um, and to have those goals be committed for a five-year fixed period um, and to have executive comp linked to those goals. Um, what did you read or watch on the plane to Australia yesterday? Um, I mostly slept on the way down, I have to confess, but I did read The Economist. And finally, uh, who would you like to sit down with for an hour over a glass of wine to pick their brain? Uh, I'm, I've spent a lot of time in South Africa uh, over the years and... Um, I would love to be able to sit down with Nelson Mandela. I think it would be a fantastic experience. I happened to be in South Africa on the day that he died and uh, it was a very kind of moving experience, clearly a, a, a hugely impressive uh, human being. I'm into that. Uh, Anthony Jenkins, uh, that's all we have time for. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. That's all from us today at Westpac Wire. For more, head to westpacwire.com.au. Thanks for listening.